true to what you said on paper. Radio, we take off right now. And there you have it. I'm Lamont Banks along with David Banks, Demetrius Harper, Kendrick Barnes, Dave Zapolo, Tapson Riddle, William Williams, Clint Stewart, Dennis Merritt, Sadiq Wright, and the entire AJC radio team as we pick it up where we left it off a couple of weeks ago dealing with the IRP-5 and the journey we have been taking this year thus far regarding the uh, the IRP-5. And, David, we're going to be picking it up, I believe, at this point, if I remember correctly, we are actually going into the courtroom. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, we, uh, 
Uh, just to give people a little background, uh, uh, the IRP-6 case is about a civil case being turned criminal by a prosecutor, uh, presumably uh, at the behest of some large corporation to eliminate competition in the uh, law enforcement software space. Uh, it actually happened after 9-11. We lost eight years in prison. Uh, and the constitutional rights and violations of law and violation of rights that happened at trial was uh, so epic until it, it prompted a former federal judge to, uh, in retirement, to actually speak about the case, which it, which everybody knows is an unprecedented, unprecedented step for any judge to comment on the case. But uh, the injustice and uh, violations of law in the Constitution were so grotesque until this judge felt uh, it was – he just felt uh, motivated, really – and remiss not to say something about this type of injustice, finally saying that it's worse than justice uh, to the IRP-5 that he's seen in 60 years in the law at the time. So, uh, yeah, we're going to get into trial and look at the misconduct by the prosecutor, by the judge. And this is this is federal trial. You don't hear much about federal prosecutors and federal judges engaging in misconduct. Really, they, nobody ever talks about it. But, uh, again, like, like uh, Lamont said, we're the poster child for uh, government misconduct, judicial misconduct, prosecutorial misconduct, and just injustice all the way around. All right. And uh, we intend to do that, folks. Feel free to dial in tonight to 646-200-0628, 646-200-0628 as we continue uh, this journey. Uh, Samson, your thoughts on this? A uh, couple of weeks removed from this, but uh, your thoughts as we get ready to actually enter the courtroom uh, and I believe that is where the jury is picked uh, uh, day one, I believe, and, and all these things happen and assembling a jury and all these things. Um, give us your thoughts. Well, I mean, I think you're going to get it laid out where, you I mean, you're going to see, um, honestly, the, the setup from the word go. I mean, like David said, this is a civil case turned criminal, uh, basically to eliminate uh, five minority executives from the larger pool of government money that they were well on the way towards gathering a large portion of. Now, the fact of the matter is, is as we've heard, they developed the software that was, you know, the likes of which nobody had ever seen before. People, larger corporations had tried to invent it and failed for years. So all, all that to say that that is the root behind why these gentlemen were set up, in my opinion. That is the root cause behind why, you know, uh, uh, a district attorney, why a federal judge, why all these personnel gathered and rallied behind a single force and, and motive that is to take down the IRP P5 and put them away for as long as possible while stealing the the software they worked so hard to develop. The fact of the matter is they didn't want to let them at the table, much less give them the big plate. And that's exactly where these men were headed. So you're going to see it set up from jury selection to lack of evidence being allowed uh, to be presented uh, in their defense to basically a judge lying on record and then striking that portion of the record and making it completely unavailable and stealing it. So, I mean, you're going to hear a lot of stuff going on. And I guarantee that our audience is going to be shaking their heads, scratching their heads, being like, how in the world, if we have the best justice system in the world, is this travesty allowed to take place? and be marched around for years and ultimately in, and these men spending, you know, eight years or so behind bars in a federal uh, institution. No, absolutely right. And uh, for the record, 
the greatest system uh, left the building. I don't even know if it's ever been the greatest system uh, in the world, um, given what we have seen thus far. And this is something that is a continuing problem in our justice system, excuse me, in our system uh, in regards to justice. Uh, it is far in between. Uh, and if you happen to get justice, maybe it slipped through and was of a higher power than the actual system itself. I'll, I'll use it as that, um, uh, that perhaps an act of God uh, is the thing that rendered justice in situations when in most cases you're not going to get it. That's just the facts uh, of how that goes down. Um, so we're going to come back. We're going to deal with all of this entering the courtroom at the federal courthouse in Denver. Uh, strap in, ladies and gentlemen. This is going to be a turbulent flight, if you will, as we get ready to uncover the injustice of the RP5. This is ABC Radio. Be right back. How often does our justice system get it wrong, convicting innocent people of crimes they did not commit? A new project by the University of Michigan Law School and the Center for Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University School of Law tries to answer that question. In the last 23 years, more than 2,000 people have been convicted of serious crimes and later exonerated, according to the National Registry of Exonerations. By far, the largest segment was almost 1,200 defendants falsely convicted because of large-scale patterns of police corruption, generally in drug and gun cases. Of the remaining 873 defendants exonerated, nearly half were wrongly convicted of murder, and of that group, 101 were sentenced to death. On average, it took more than 11 years for a conviction to be set aside. Why does the justice system get it wrong? In homicides, the biggest problem is perjury and false accusation, most often by supposed eyewitnesses. False convictions in adult rape cases are primarily based on mistakes by eyewitnesses, while false convictions in child sex abuse cases are often for fabricated crimes that never occurred. 2,000 exonerations may seem small in a nation with more than 2.3 million people behind bars, but there are far more false convictions than the report contains. Most false convictions are never formally challenged, and those convictions that are successfully overturned receive little or no attention from the media, according to the report's authors. For a kid whose mom or dad is in prison, life is tough. Now add a wrongful conviction to that, life just got a little bit tougher. Trying to explain to friends why mom or dad is not at the school play or at the ball game is something that no kid should ever be faced with. Especially if mom or dad is innocent. Ladies and gentlemen, get involved today to stop the epidemic of wrongful convictions by remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation. You can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause today, 1-855-529-4252. We seek justice for the children 
as they go to bed at night and mom's not there, dad's not in the other room to make them feel safe. Not because dad or mom did anything wrong, because justice could not be found. Join us for the children, for they truly are our future. The United States houses more human beings in prisons than any other country in the world. This is true whether you're counting total numbers or in relation to population size. This wasn't always the case. The number of prisoners in the U.S. began to rise dramatically in the 1970s. So what changed in America compared to other countries? While there are several competing theories, a look at the data reveals that a significant part of the prison growth in the last 40 years has been driven by the war on drugs. Here's the data. By 1980, there were over 315,000 prisoners in state and federal facilities. 57% were violent offenders. 30% were property violators, such as thieves or those convicted of fraud. 5.5% of inmates were in for public order and other miscellaneous offenses. And the remaining 7.5% were nonviolent drug law violators. Ten years later, the drug war had grown, and the total American prison population had more than doubled to over 740,000 inmates. The proportion of offenders in each type of crime had also changed dramatically. The most growth occurred in the nonviolent drug offender population, which grew to a significant 24%. And this last statistic actually understates the influence of the drug war on prison populations. Many studies have shown that drug prohibition causes violent crime by leading to the formation of gangs and cartels. And thus, it is safe to say that the number of violent criminals under prohibition is higher than it would otherwise be. From 1990 to 2000, the drug-driven population growth continued. By 2000, the total prison population had almost doubled again to over 1.3 million inmates. And by 2010, the prison population was up to 1.6 million people. The growth has started to settle and even decline in recent years, but the proportions of offenses are retaining their post-1990 levels. America's unique methods of enforcing drug prohibition seem to parallel its unique prison population. And one has to ask, is our country really better off with so many nonviolent drug offenders behind bars? Are drug users likely to be cured from addiction by being locked up? Has locking up dealers and users lessened the demand for drugs? Certainly, the effects on overall usage could not be called a success. And yet we spend billions every year on this war and lock up hundreds of thousands. Surely there must be a less costly approach to addressing drug use in America. Whenever the bombs come close, 
My dad says we have to leave, which makes me scared. I'm worried our new neighbors won't like us. What if they don't understand our religion? Because they don't speak the language, it might be hard for me to make friends. But I know it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be worth it. I just want my family to be safe. But these are not my words. These are not my words. These are not my words. We have a big problem, and we need your help. It's happening on college campuses, at bars, at parties, even in high schools. It's happening to our sisters and our daughters. Our wives and our friends. It's called sexual assault, and it has to stop. We have to stop it. So listen up. If she doesn't consent, or if she can't consent, it's rape, it's assault. It's a crime. It's wrong. If I saw it happening, I was taught you have to do something about it. If I saw it happening, I speak up. If I saw it happening, I'd never blame her. I'd help her. Because I don't want to be a part of the problem. I want to be a part of the solution. We need all of you to be part of the solution. This is about respect. It's about responsibility. It's up to all of us to put an end to sexual assault. And that starts with you. Because one is too many. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight, where the IRP5 story of injustice continues on this radio program. And uh, we're going to invite you to dial in tonight uh, to chime in on this conversation, 646-200-0628, 646-200-0628. As we continue this journey, uh, we have made it from the raid uh, that happened at the facilities of the IRP5 uh, down to the actions of the improper behavior at the grand jury uh, and the uh, testimony of LaWanna Banks-Clark spending days there. Uh, I believe, as we said before, when we get further down to her, um, contributed to the death of LaWanna Banks-Clark, the type of grilling and things that she went through uh, was absolutely unacceptable and should be labeled as criminal. Uh, thus, I believe, uh, resulting in the death of the one of Banks Clark. Um, before we get into that, uh, there was a, some current news we forgot to share with you. We're going to share with you now uh, regarding a officer that pulled over a gentleman, an African-American gentleman today. Was that today, um, Tanique? I'm not sure if it was today or I'm not sure if it was today or yesterday. Okay, what happened? The last day. 21st. The 21st? Yeah, well, what happened okay. was the uh, police officer uh, uh, pulled the guy over supposedly, uh, and I'm just going to read it for you. It said a Miami-Dade police officer is under investigation, has been placed on administrative desk duty after he was caught on video telling a black motorist during a traffic stop this is how you guys get killed out here, man. Police said on Monday, uh, Jerrison Nicholson, uh, 29, was on his way to work 
just before 9 a.m. June 15th when an officer on a motorcycle pulled him over in North Miami Beach for not wearing a seatbelt. Uh, Nicholas told the uh, NBC Miami that he started fuming after the officer who pulled him over took the keys out of the car's ignition and opened the door. A video of the encounter was posted on TikTok last Thursday and has been viewed more than 75,000 times. So as you can see, there's still racism out there. I mean, why would you, you pulled him over for a specific reason and then you have the nerve to say, this is why, uh, you know, you guys get killed. So let me make sure I'm clear. Uh, because you got pulled over for a seatbelt is why you get shot. That's is what that correct? Go ahead, Tanae. And then uh, the driver said that uh, when he asked for his license, he said he opened the cop opened his door and he said he started recording because he feared for his life. And he said, I couldn't find my license. I was trying to get my wallet, trying to, you know, find my license. Then when a cop pulls you over, you're nervous. There's all these shootings with black men. He said, I got nervous and the cop got mad because I couldn't find my license and insurance information. Then he, the cop makes a statement. Um, give me your license, your registration, because you might not, basically, you may not be going to work today. Like, why would you tell him that? No, he said, if you don't give it to me, you're not going to work. So am I going to the morgue? Uh, is there another destination I'm headed to that we need to be aware of? Uh, that's absolutely. Go ahead, Dave. And then the president of the Police uh, uh, Benevolent Association, uh, Stedman Stahl, said people die from not wearing seatbelts every day. That has nothing to, to do with what the officer was saying. Is he trying to insinuate? He's he's trying to say the reason the officer pulled him over, but this sounds like, well, it just goes right along with what the officer police officer said. said. Yep. So hold on. So then why would he have to clarify what to say, you guys get killed? Who are you guys? They, you guys. Please, please tell me who you well, guys let me, let me are. Find that Don't you, say motorists. Let me define that, you people. Is, is that where we're at? Going back to the 50s, the coloreds, and the other like. So, yeah, oh, so he, he knew what he was talking about. Look, he said, so let me make sure I'm clear. The, the benevolent guy over that basically tried to say that is what the officer was referring to, that people die not wearing their seatbelts every day. But that's the officer's statement was made after he asked for the license and he asked for registration. And when he couldn't find it, this is why you guys get killed. Right. Because if it's, a, if it's a statistical statement, the statement made by the officer should have been, man, people die every day because they don't wear their seatbelt. That was just an out he looked for. And if that was what the officer meant, why is he on death's leave right now? Because he knows exactly what he did. We'll be bringing more current events uh I'm sure those issues are never going to stop, uh, and we'll address them as we uh, get there. Uh, okay, guys, back to the IRP5. Um, we now find ourselves at the steps of the courthouse uh, as these five men begin to ascend on the courthouse steps to go into what, in their minds, hoped and believed that justice would prevail. In this particular case, Justice started to crumble from the time they opened that courtroom door. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, we had had uh, two years of preliminary hearings. Uh, both of those hearings, we talked about this was a, uh, 
a civil case turned criminal by the prosecutor. Actually, in two of the hearings, the prosecutor might have been hearing and in a previous trial, the, uh, actually the FBI agent said if uh, the IRP6, IRP5 had actually paid their bills, they wouldn't be here right now. So he pretty much confirmed that, that this was a uh, this was a modern day lynching of, of black men uh, and their business uh, for the express purpose of of uh, not paying debt. Kendrick, your thoughts? The thing is, um, you start understanding how controlled this process is because. You're believing that you're, – well, you're going in hoping that what they say on paper is true, that this is a fair process. But even during the jury selection, uh, it's this it's this mass puzzle to try to get the people that you want on the jury that will right. basically hear the case and be fair. You just want, you just want someone who, who is there, is going to listen to the case, understands what you're talking about, and make their judgment call from there. But we saw time and time again how – this is our first time going through this process, but these prosecutors know how to manipulate the system. They know how to get uh, people – I mean we were trying to get people on a jury that had some business acumen, that understand what it means to run a business, that uh, the, the difficulties you can't have in a business get funding and, and certain things that you do. But you saw how the prosecution made sure that the jury was ignorant and uh, and um, ill-equipped to basically make a judgment on this. And then they, and they tell you, well, you're going to have a jury of your peers, and that was not the case here. This was a jury that was uh, mainly sided with the government, and it was and it became quite obvious at that point that you, you're going into a process where you know this isn't as fair as they sell it on paper. Demetrius. Well, to Kendrick's point, it's a, it's it's like you're playing a card game with a fixed deck. You you know you're not the cards you're going to be dealt, and that's where when we went into that courtroom, that's exactly what it felt like. Uh, to the point of one one lady doing uh, Vordier said, if the government brought a case, they have to be guilty. She said that. I don't believe she was picked, but that's the mindset. To Kendrick's point, that's the mindset of these people that saying. Uh, that our government so trusted and so loyal and so outstanding, they would never bring a case. That's the mentality that the and the government knows this. That's why they they're going to get rid of people that are going to be in our favor for the defense. The uh, IT professionals that work more than one job, uh, that moonlight on at after hours or have multiple, you know, two or three contracts. Uh, to this day, people are getting called in the IT profession to say. Uh, Take another job. Take a, a, a third job because that's the norm, and that was how it was back then. So you had all this stack from jury selection going into opening statements and further on through the trial. It's like how can you win when the deck is already fixed against you? The house always wins. That's, that's what I feel like in the court of law. And if you remember, we had one gentleman who was a Jehovah Witness. He was actually picked to be a juror. The judge picked him out and asked him. Uh, do you think that you could ever uh, convict somebody? He's like, well, based on my beliefs, I don't think I could ever convict somebody yeah. to a crime. Well, she removes him from the jury. Right. So my question is, why are you asking this guy that? You know, it's like it well, should be – if you say it's impartial, we pick the jury, then why are you going through – let me find two comb and make sure that there's that, nobody that's going to be on our side. Yeah, no one's on our side. Let's get rid of them. But Yeah, I, I want to go back to something that uh, David said and, and Ken alluded to as well. Uh, about the debt, you know, I mean, you know, saying that the prosecutor uh, has all this power, he he's empowered by the judge. 
Now, the judge, you would think, going in, I, I, I believe everybody uh, going into a case to defend themselves, been accused of anything, they say, well, the judge gonna, is going to listen to me, is going to see my evidence and hear me out, right? The FBI responded to a complaint from one of the vendors saying they owe me money. The FBI wrote a letter saying, sir, uh, your company, you're right, but you need to seek recourse in a civil uh, court. Uh, so the FBI uh, is turning you down for a criminal investigation. You need, we had a letter that said this. And so you would think <laughs> going into the courtroom that the judge would say, hey, look, the FBI uh, special agent in charge uh, in the Denver office has already deemed this thing to be a civil matter. It should be settled in a civil court. You know, move along, get this thing out of my courtroom. It's not a criminal case. But that didn't happen. And it really is, is very telling to see the judge bring that about, even with a letter from the FBI saying this is a civil matter. On the, on the letter that was supplied from the FBI stating that this was a civil matter. Was that presented to the court? Number one, it should have been presented prior to even entering the courtroom and dismissed by the judge well, as was, far as any criminal proceedings. Well, it was presented to the prosecutor. Uh, see, this is what happens. The judges pretty much allow to give the prosecutors free reign in courtrooms pretty much to do whatever they want to do. Uh, at least that's our experience. Um, and they're, they're both... Uh, somewhat sophisticated uh, in their manipulations of the process and of the court uh, and of the entire court process. So you really, really do not have your rights respected uh, when both the judge and the prosecutor are against you. See, the prosecutor, just like they have in the grand jury, they don't, they can see all the exculpatory evidence they want. You put it out there. They can still indict you and bring charges on, on some uh, novel theory that they've come up with based on uh, cherry-picking of evidence. Was it argued that this letter had been in, in, in um, uh, been available, that this, this letter came from the FBI in, prior to the trial? Was that information presented to the, to the uh, prosecution? Yes, it, it was in discovery. That's where we found that letter. And the letter came after we were indicted. So I would presume the letter was there prior to the indictment. Yes. Right. Right. No. The 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 person contacted the FBI after we were indicted. No, I got that. But the letter was in circulation, stating after the FBI did their investigation, uh, that the FBI said we cannot go forward. Uh, this is a civil matter, which means the criminal matter uh, is off the table. Right. That would be the case. Right. Um, but that was also uh, ignored and kind of pushed out of the way as if the letter didn't exist, but in reality it did. Well, we didn't know about it. The prosecution gave that. it to us in discovery. So we found it in discovery. They already know about this. And, you know, my point is the judge, if, if the judge had any integrity, well, in the light of the FBI, who is supporting the prosecution, that you've already ruled on this matter in your house, that this is not a criminal matter. You have it in writing, signed by the authority of the special agent in charge. This is not a civil matter. We, we recommend you seek recourse 
in civil court to get your money back. So that's okay. very clear. So that statement was made? No, it was a letter. It's in Mont- written in writing. Right, right. to send to seek uh, right. legal recourse as, as a civil case. Right, exactly. and they said they had no jurisdiction. This is your best advice to them as the senior agent in charge in Denver. That they should take legal recourse through uh, uh, several matters. Right. Well, and just just keep in mind, the prosecutor has discretion to bring charges. I understand the that. The FBI agent, the FBI, the prosecutor, irrespective of what the FBI thinks, can still bring a case. Which in most cases, uh, they would lean towards the FBI investigation to say, look, we need to proceed. Even if the FBI suggested, look, this is civil. We really don't have nothing here to go off on. The integrity of the office should have, and and that's in our false world that we live in, should have had this case thrown out based yeah, upon the, the recommendation it's, it's of the still FBI. Like putting, it's still like putting the cart before the horse because how would the prosecution know there was a crime unless the FBI brought it to them? Exactly this, right. This case was irregular because an outside attorney con- that used to be uh, a AUSA contacted the U.S. And so it, wasn't, it didn't come from the FBI. It came from a so-called private citizen with connections, which we know that's a bunch of crap. And we'll uh, and back to the we'll, point. We'll address that. Mont, uh, also, when we tried to, if I believe correctly, gentlemen, if I'm on this, we tried to enter that into evidence as well, and that got rejected as well, just to show that saying, "Hey, right, it, right, okay, exactly, ridiculous." Well, we're gonna dig to the bottom of it, ladies and gentlemen. Davis Polo, go ahead. Well, one of the things, the first day we walked into the courtroom, we were all confident that we were going to be walking out with the case dismissed before jury selection even occurred. That's that's what you believe. Yeah, because we had a number of strong motions, including a speedy trial dismissal motion that should have been reviewed and accepted by the judge. We walked in and within 30 minutes, denied, denied, denied. Okay, let's go to jury and selection. And you guys had reached... The date beyond speedy, which is what six months. Oh yeah, we days. we had one point. Right. Go ahead. We had one point where there was a one year delay where nothing happened during that year, which automatically qualifies you for violation of speedy. Correct. Which is, is according to law, which is insane. That shows you the insanity and the the arrogance of this judge. Right. It's automatic. If you the clock stops. At 180 days. Right. You're telling me this one be, went beyond a year, and that's federal and state. Right. Speedy is speedy. So that's a so violation. The violation of due process. Of constitutional right. And with, with, Absolutely. So the violation of due process happened here. When you guys went in the court that day, the judge's job was to dismiss the case based upon violation of speedy. Right. Automatically. And if the motion is filed with the court, that's automatic. It's not something that needs legal scholars to figure out. You are beyond the clock stops. And once the clock stops and we're still sitting out for a year well, doing nothing, uh, then you're in violation. Obviously, the attorneys and the judge, uh, one reason we went pro se is because the attorneys were not, they were so busy, uh, the court-appointed attorneys, at this time, we're so busy trying to get us to take a plea deal, they really weren't doing anything to build a defense. They kept, uh, for some reason, thinking that they could convince us, and we were we were completely 100% against uh, any sort of plea deal because we didn't commit a crime. Mm-hmm. So 
but they continue to uh, push us to try to take a plea deal. And the bizarre part about this is the state court, which, again, is the same federal when it comes to speedy. Speedy is speedy. There's no discrepancy or, well, maybe in the state level, speedy is different. It's speedy is speedy. So I remember in my wrongful conviction case, uh, we got up to about three weeks till speedy was going to stop, where speedy was going to be an issue. The judge went to the bench. And he called us in the courtroom and he said, I'm getting ready to tell the prosecution, if you are not ready to go in three weeks, this case will be dismissed based upon a violation of speedy. He said, I'm telling you, don't, I don't, I'm not going to hear any motions. Why, what you have had all this time, that's why speedy is stretched out. And he said, I'm telling you right now, get this case ready to go. Or this case is not going. That's simple. That is the proper protocol the judge is supposed to do. And in that case, it was three weeks, three weeks before Speedy was going to hit. In this case, as, as Dave said, you sat around for a year, sitting around doing nothing. And whether the lawyers, the court-appointed attorneys, uh, attorneys were too busy not even paying attention, well, that's their problem. And what had happened, too, is they went in and they asked for the delay because they had to prepare for the trial. Who asked for the delay? Uh, the court-appointed attorneys. But now, the judge in the federal statute, when granting that, must give reason for for granting the delay in, in the speedy trial. Here's now, the difference. We, we never agreed to. That's where I'm going. Yeah. You don't grant, you don't get a delay and waive speedy without the defendant's approval. Right. And we never approved that. And the judge is supposed to say, do the defendants, are they aware what happens upon waiving speedy? And she has to have specific reasons for the delay and must have uh, periodic updates as to how things are going. And none of that happens. But here's the difference. See, this is why you guys, uh, is why they did this. Look. Even if she had reason, 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 the five defendants must agree to waive speedy. Doesn't matter what she thinks or what's going on. You are you are six months past the clock stopping. But because she thought she was untouchable, you guys would have had to say to the court. The court is going to ask you, do you waive speedy? Are you aware of what this means? And make sure you're very much aware of what waiving speedy means. That means the clock is not going to stop. That means we can go for a long period of time doing what we're doing. That, well, that, that is supposed to be told to the defendants. I think in the end, uh, we capitulated and tried to go with the attorneys. But what ended up happening was the judge granted even more time than the defense attorneys asked for, which was the bizarre thing, was if, first of all, the case wasn't complex. The judge tried to say, as far as uh, precedent goes, if a, if a case is complex, uh, they try to say that gives the defense more time to prepare their case and all this other type of stuff on a complex case that has a lot that has a lot of issues this was not a complex case so the the way the way the judge got around it was she declared the case complex just by the number of documents in the case 
which half of the documents were illegally seized uh, church banking records. So the case was not complex. The issues were not complex. Uh, the prosecutor had to cherry pick, needed time, I, I suppose, to cherry pick through the evidence to try to come up with a theory. And another thing I think what was going on, the defense attorneys wanted to be able to bill the government for hours that they claimed they were actually doing work on a on a complex case. So they billed the court because they're court appointed, CJA attorneys, they continue to bill the court for hours they claim they're working on what they had all come together and said was a complex case, which was not complex. Not complex at all. And I think I point out, I point out the speedy issue to point out the lack of integrity by Judge Christine Arguello. It was her job to stand up and say, Do the defend, are you aware of your rights defendant one through five? You don't have to waive speedy. That is your choice and yours alone. That, that's what should have been told by this judge. And it has not, even if the attorneys fail, the judge's job is to ensure, once that clock stops, that you were made aware of your rights, you were made aware that this happens if Speedy is waived, and if you don't want to space, uh, waive Speedy, it's you're within your right not to. But so from the beginning and from day one, this judge... Uh, had no regard for due process, period. She made up her own rules as she went. And as a result, these five men, from the beginning, from the first day they entered that courtroom, corruption was at play. There's no other way to put it. Go ahead. Well, and when one of the things that you, we looked at is when we went in after the indictment and th we, we could have said we want, we want speedy trial, we want this done in September. And if we had done that, almost all of the interviews that the prosecution brought into the courtroom were done after that September. You look at they changed their theory of the case after the indictment. I, it just was ridiculous to see all that happened in that one year delay that, again, we agreed to a few months, but the judge gave our attorneys a much longer delay. That delay gave the government more time to prepare their case, too. Absolutely right, which means the prosecution may have not been prepared. They were. Absolutely not prepared. Number one, they had no case from the beginning. And you, the judge gives them a gift. And so you give them the prosecution, the government of the United States, you give them a year to create a case. And they still failed miserably, but you gave them a year. An extra year. An two, extra year. Two years when we got to trial. Yeah, because we got indicted in, was it May of 2009, and we went to trial in at the end of September in 2011. Unbelievable to me. And so when you talk to people about this case, the reason people are flustered, the reason people are blown away is because the basics of the criminal justice, quote unquote, system are not honored or not respected. Because what they what they anticipate is and you have judges like that, you have a God complex to think I'll do it the way I want to do it. 
and nobody's going to touch me. But the system enables them to do just that. They do just that. William, your thoughts? You know, as you were talking, I, I was reminded, I saw on the show the other day, the lady said, remember, it's the U.S. legal system, not the U.S. justice system. And what she was implying is how the system is used to manipulate cases like this. And so as you're talking, I was reminded of that, and I was also reminded of the fact that, you know, when you sit there and you look at the judges, there's a partnership as a team that's going on between the judge and the prosecution. You know, a lot of times they build that relationship. That's their prosecutor. Oh. And and so what it does is you go in there with, like Demetrius said, the deck's already stacked against you. They are, they are, they are allowed and given much more liberty than the defense. And we saw it in this case. The defense was not allowed to have, to provide evidence or the witnesses that they wanted. But, however, we're sitting there talking about the prosecution was able to – a year to craft a case. And you think and about that. And a false narrative. And a false narrative. So they were – so in other words, they were able to be a script writer. Think about it. They were no different than Steven Spielberg or somebody else. They were able to put together an Academy Award-winning performance. And, and and the judge allows this stuff. And this is what happens in our legal system today. And so being a part of this, seeing it happen, and you realize you go in there with everything already stacked against you. There's bias in the with the jury. The jury's already looking at you with the, as if you're guilty. And they're allowed and the prosecution allows that allows them to paint the picture a complete picture to the jury so they can reach the outcome that they already wanted. They already knew before it was even started that they wanted a guilty plea. This, everything is set I mean, not a plea, a guilty verdict. Everything is set up to the end at that result. And no matter what you say or do. Well, uh, the thing is that uh, most of these cases and most judges' decisions are not challenged. They're just simply not challenged. We're going to take a quick break. we got a caller in queue. Michelle, hang on with us. We're going to take a quick break. On the other side of the break, we'll get to you. And anybody else that needs to dial in today, 646-200-0628, 646-200-0628. The IRP5 on full display. This is IJC Radio. We'll be right back. History is important because it shows where you're coming from and where you're going. Type 2 diabetes is something that runs in my family, which means I'm at risk. In fact, one in three American adults are at risk for developing type 2 diabetes. And knowing this, if I do nothing, that family history becomes my family's future. And my family is too important to me for that. Take the risk factor assessment today at AskGreenNo.com. Do you know anyone who's been sent to prison who's innocent? The United States is experiencing record numbers of exonerations in cases where people were wrongfully convicted of crimes they did not commit. If you believe that no one should be sent to prison for crimes they didn't commit, there is something that you can do today. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause at 855 855- 529-4252 or visit a-justcause.com and click the donate button. 
A just cause is a 501c3. Wrongful convictions are wrong. Let's be the voice of those who can't speak from behind the wall. There are no loose ends in TV procedural dramas. At the end of the hour, the bad guy always gets what's coming to him. Unfortunately, the real world is a lot more complicated. We know from the work of the Innocence Project and other organizations in the Innocence Network that the system doesn't always get it right. According to the National Registry of Exonerations, since 1989, nearly 2,000 people have been exonerated of crimes they didn't commit. What people don't realize is a good number of those people pleaded guilty to crimes even though they were innocent. In fact, in nearly 10% of the nation's DNA exonerations, people pleaded guilty to serious crimes and agreed to serve significant prison time because the system is stacked against them, especially if they are poor and people of color. That's right. The stakes are so high that we have innocent men and women agreeing to serve long prison sentences. A system that puts that much pressure on people to plead guilty is a problem. Visit guiltypleadproblem.org to learn more about the men and women who are pressured into pleading guilty to crimes they didn't commit. And join us in demanding that our elected officials do something to protect the innocent people who get caught up in a broken criminal justice system. Thank you. I stand for equality. I stand for individuality. I stand for peace. I stand for diversity. I stand for dignity. I stand for respect. I stand for fairness. Five-year-old man convicted of murder, waiting for his trial to finally go through. He's been on death row for 25 years now and finds out he's been wrongfully convicted and is completely innocent. Not only does this mean that 25 years of his life have been spent in jail for no reason, but that the actual murderer could still be out there right now. The bad thing is that this exact thing happens more often than you think. But you can help stop it by supporting our campaign to abolish the death penalty. When does it stop being partly cloudy and start being partly sunny? Why is the word abbreviation so long? Are English muffins just muffins in England? Why is it called a washing line and not a drying line? Do fish get thirsty? If ghosts can walk through doors, why don't they fall through floors? Do you yawn when you sleep? If prunes are dried plums, how do they make prune juice? Why do doctors leave the room when you change? They're going to see you naked anyway. Do board chefs wear hairnets? How much deeper would the ocean be if all the sponges were taken out? Do you believe someone who says they're a chronic liar? Why is sandwich bread square and sandwich meat round? Life's full of hard questions. Ask one more. You might just save a lot. Thank you. 
You can't sit here. Don't add her to the chain. It was just a joke. We're not friends. Why are you talking to me? You started it. It's so gross. Lame. Loser. Weirdo. I've said and done things before that I'm not proud of. Just as I've been hurt by others. The thing is, this, this is not who I am. And it's definitely not who I want to be. I don't want to be cruel. I don't want to spread gossip. I don't want to be a body shaver. I don't want to exclude anyone. I don't want to make anyone feel lonely. Left out. Hurt. We have the power to be more. We can create a kinder world. It's not that hard. We just need to stop. Take a moment and consider others before we speak. And before we act. Be more. Be more. Be more. In the fabric of America, they are the toughest threads. One of the first things they learned was the code that every service member lives by. Leave no one behind. Now all of us need to live by it, too, because some veterans aren't being left behind. Twenty of them take their own lives every day. Learn how to be there for a veteran at BeThereForVeterans.com. Honor the code. Be there. Leave no one behind. Because I'm 16, I can't drive at night. Because I'm 16, I can't work past 10 o'clock on a school night. Because I'm 16, I can't get a cell phone contract without my parents. Because I'm 16, I can't get a flu shot without my mother's consent. At 16, I'm not old enough to watch an R-rated movie alone. Because I'm 16, I can't buy a lottery ticket. I can't vote. I can't drink. I can't smoke. I can't join the military. Because I'm 16, I can't sit on a jury, but I can be tried as an adult. I can get a lifetime criminal record. If I get arrested, my parents don't have to be notified. Because I'm 16... My mother had to sign this consent form so that I could participate in this video. But I can go to an adult prison. But I can go to Rikers Island. But I can be sent to Attica. My name is Michael Corriero. I was a judge for 28 years in the criminal courts of the state of New York. New York is one of only two states in the entire nation that automatically tries children as young as 16 as adults. We need to change that. Last week, my father sent me to my room. Next week, a judge can sentence me to an adult prison. We need to judge children as children. It's time to raise the age of criminal responsibility in New York. Ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight. Tonight we are on a journey. The IRP Five: David Banks, Demetrius Harper, Kendrick Barnes, Dave Zapolo, and Quentin Stewart. Uh, men who suffered one of the most horrific cases of injustice in decent in, in recent history. Now that may sound like a stretch to those that. They're like, well, this happens all the time. But when it visits your own front door, and not only that, comes in the house and takes a seat in the living room, 
we're dealing with a major issue here. Um, we're going to deal with that. We're right now we're at the point of in the courtroom, getting ready, talking a little bit about Speedy uh, as we talked during the break. Um, uh, understand a lot of people are not aware uh, of Speedy, what's involved with Speedy, all of that stuff. Uh, and it basically gives you an opportunity uh, in doing Speedy that you have it. There's a certain window of time that's allotted uh, to process a case. Well, the window of time is because of the public scrutiny and the public pressure and the pressure on the defendant to be under indictment and not have his matter resolved. Uh, that's where the speedy trial stuff, you, you have a right if you're accused to get to trial, be tried, and don't have really this drawn out. drawn out and have all this stuff hanging over your head. Uh, if a prosecutor brings a case, he should be ready to bring a case and not leave you uh, blowing out, hanging out in the wind. So, no. uh, so from a due process perspective, that's where it comes in that it's unfair to a defendant for you to bring these charges and have him under underneath this public scrutiny and, and, and public uh, uh, bad public reputation uh, uh, from the indictment without getting a resolution to it. And, but not only that, but not giving the, the government or the prosecution an opportunity to create this theory of a case when he doesn't have one. Right, and because right. the prosecutor is, shouldn't be irresponsible enough to bring charges unless he's ready to go to trial. And in many cases, and especially in, in, in our uh, case, uh, the prosecutor had was throwing out multiple theories, doing what he can, throwing mud against the wall, and see which theory would actually stick. Gotcha. Uh, so that that explains a little bit. Thanks, David. A little bit of of Speedy, the purpose of it, um, and the fact that, as I said, it, it, it falls somewhat at the judges. If the judge is thorough, uh, even if she is given delays for whatever reason, she is still in, in, in informing the defendants that look. This is what is available. This is why I'm doing what I'm doing. It is not to in any way infringe on your rights, whether it be true or not. You, you have a responsibility uh, to look, uh, to, to at least inform and educate the defendants that are in the case. And, uh, and we also need to make a point that um, two years leading up to the trial, there was a lot of... Uh, a lot of stuff you talked about speedy taking forever to get there. We pretty much sat around doing nothing. Attorneys didn't do nothing. They were trying to get paid to be honest with you. And they kept trying to force us to take a plea deal. What people don't know is that uh, prior to trial, um, I can't remember how many months and sometime we still had some hearings and stuff, but prior to trial, we actually fired our attorneys at the same day in the same room. Because uh, we would ask our court-appointed attorneys, we talk about an issue, we provide them with information, and then we would come back, mention the information, and say, well, well where did that come from? They didn't remember we even talked about it. So they were so hell-bent on getting us to take a plea deal until they really weren't even proud. They're just billing uh, the government for their court-appointed fees just so they can make money. And trying to get us to take a plea deal and really not working on the case. And so you, I got ultimately, you we had to fire. And them. if you remember, in that first year, they were supposed to be flying out to D.C. and New York, talking to our witnesses. And in that year time, they never talked to one witness that supported our case. 
Not yes. one. Who was supposed to stick with them? Our, our quarter quarter point of the They tournament. never did it in a year? In a year. Never. And, David, that was December 2010 that we fired them. And, we, wow. and so we had we – had, so, I, yeah, that's recall because we had like eight months, eight to ten months to prepare for trial at that point. Because once we fired them, obviously we need time to prepare for trial as pro se defendants. Because that was our only option. Either they weren't going to aggressively defend us, so we had to go defend ourselves and defend our innocence. So you guys went into a courtroom based upon the fact that these attorneys did not do their job. Yeah, we had to fire them. If you're not going to get represented and just just going to sit around take a plea deal, they, they really don't didn't have the weren't motivated us motivated to put up a uh, aggressive defense for our innocence, even though all the evidence was there for them to do so. Well, I think we got a caller uh, on the line. Um, just one moment here as they connect her. Michelle, you with us? Yes. All right, go ahead, please. Um, I was wondering, um, this judge is obviously biased and broke several laws. Is there anything that could be done to her? To me, she needs to be thrown off the bench. She should be prosecuted. She's supposed to be impartial and over um, the whole process. And she just, I mean, she did everything she could to lock you guys up when there was no evidence that you were guilty. Can't something be done to her? Uh, I'll tell you this, David. I'll let you you field that question. But I can tell you in a perfect world, absolutely yes. And with a perfect system, absolutely yes. In a system where we have taken the justice name off of the door and off of the title, remains to be seen. David, go ahead and chime in on that one. Judges, police, judges. In many cases, police, police, their own. uh, And they look at conduct. Uh, For prosecutors, the DOJ reviews uh, misconduct for prosecutors. So, well, the prosecutors are part of the DOJ. Um, judges uh, look into misconduct by judges. And if you look at the statistics of all the judicial complaints, almost 100% of them are thrown out. Uh, if somebody files, a, if a person files, a judici- if another judge files a judicial complaint against another judge, they're typically looked at. But if a complaint is filed by a by a defendant or just an average person about what the judge was doing to them, then never gets any sort of uh it just gets thrown out and, and those are the statistics for judicial complaints, period. No, absolutely. Michelle, does that answer your question? Oh, she I believe it, is she still with us? Okay. Uh, Michelle, if you're listening, that should uh, answer your question. Look, we we would hope through advocacy, through uh, people not remaining silent in situations like this um, and speaking out and coming out in numbers to uh, call out a judge for this type of behavior, uh, you would hope that change would be implemented. The system is in a very deep state of of corruption. And as David said, judges, uh, uh, police judges. And so what are you going to do if it's a political arena? It's a crony system. If these are their friends, they're not going to do anything. Well, 
judges understand judges. So judges are sympathetic to judges. In in the vast majority of cases, you do get your exceptions where a, a judge might get uh, chastised or uh, or sanctioned, sanctioned or whatever by by the court. But those are very very rare cases, and they're normally brought by a judge or the bar or somebody. So an elite organization uh, has to bring those type of charges. If you're just bringing them bringing uh complaints of misconduct they're not they're not listening to you you you, you uh, you're nothing to them well i remember the judicial complaint that was filed um uh, uh on behalf of a just cause was critically clear of judge arguello the conduct i forget how long of a how long that complaint was david i don't know if you recall uh but that complaint was very lengthy but it was very precise without question uh, called out the behavior of Judge Arguello, and as if they just turned and looked the other way. Yeah, and obviously uh, they don't allow you to challenge the judge's ruling. But if the judge engages in conduct, not only unbecoming of the office, but that's what they call extra ju- uh, extrajudicial conduct, which really is outside her scope of being a judge, she stepped. This judge Arguello stepped in and outside of her role. Uh, of her role uh, to engage in misconduct. Uh, and Judge H. Lee Serkin, who reviewed the case, he pointed out some of the issues with the prosecutors and the judge that amounted to not only misconduct but uh, outright violations of the Constitution and law. And and, and which we would they say that is the uh, is the law that it should be respected, but. When you have so many holes in respect and things being respected and the system not respected, uh, you have a different system. That's what you have. Well, and I want to chime in on one one issue. We were talking about the jury here earlier Mm -hmm. and going through the uh, voir dire process. Um, uh, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals Judge Alice Kaczynski put out all the myths about the criminal justice system in 2015 Georgetown Law Review, where he says one of the myths uh, of the system is that juries follow instructions. And uh, uh, Judge Kaczynski, this former federal appeals judge, he was a federal appeals judge at the time he wrote this, said, the fact that juries follow instructions is a presumption. He says, actually, more of a guess that we've elevated to a rule of law. So the system is set up right now where they assume that a lot of things happen, but they really can't check to see if if your rights were violated, if juries followed instructions, if they fully understood. None of these 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 checks and balances to make sure a person was convicted. So that's why it's so easy to get wrongly convicted in this system, uh, because you can't. There's no way to. Uh, check and balance say well did this really happen nobody's going back through the case and say well did the prosecutors play fair uh and just because this kid has also said that prosecutors that's another assumption that prosecutors play fair they just don't play fair many of the times but judges allowed them to get away with it which was uh, happened uh consistently in the uh in our case so the judge who is there to referee um to ensure that fairness happens on both sides, uh, that each 
side has a right to present a case uh, knocked down from the beginning when you guys began to talk about your character, that yeah. we were men of character, of of all of these things, and to immediately knock that down. But you let the government of the United States attack the character of these men. Right. And I think it's a good time because you're going into opening statements. There we go. So we're at trial. It's time to start the trial. Uh, so we'll get into actually what happened during opening statements. Okay, and to Nick, you had something to do, uh, something to add as far as the jury. Yeah, I was reading an article that was talking about the cons of the jury system, and they were talking about a case of uh, an African American man. They said he uh, was going to trial for a quadruple murder charge. He said he had six trials. So it, the, and they were talking about how the prosecution just kept trying to convict this man. And uh, that uh, judge basically came in and he said that for, for the last conviction, his sixth, his sixth time he went to court, he was convicted. And they said the prosecutor continued to not let anybody who was African-American serve. Every time a juror come up, he, he put him out. So for that time, he overruled that. But then the same judge says, well, that doesn't prevent the prosecution from bringing this man up again for the seventh time on charges. And then it was talking about how when you start talking about a jury, jury members are biased. They said they have the decision. They said a juror doesn't need to reason their decision. If they come in, they said you have to also look at who's on the jury. You've got somebody who's and no offense if you work at a fast food, but you have somebody there that was like, oh, I don't have to be at a call center or flipping burgers today. So I'll write out the, the you know, to say that I don't think they're guilty or, or guilty for weeks. And then you have somebody else who's like, OK, I have a, a family to feed. I make $200 an hour. I don't have time to sit here. Yeah, I think he's guilty. And they'll just go along with the majority because they want to get it over with. So when you have somebody who has a motive of basically, I don't care, I don't want to be here then that's how people are wrongfully convicted. So the article just talks about all these different things that prevent um, who, who wrote the a fair trial. Um, let me go up to the top well, that's, of this. Uh, that's, but that's the well, reality. Well, Judge Kaczynski in his article uh, said, we get occasional glimpses into the operation of juries when they send out questions or someone discloses juror misconduct. And even the information we get is limited. This is a former federal appeals judge. But we have no convincing reason to believe that jury instructions, in fact, constrain jury behavior in all or even most cases. And because the information we get inside the jury room is so limited and sporadic, experience does little to improve our knowledge. Looking at 100 black boxes is no more informative than looking at one. When you're talking about the black box on a plane, you just what happens inside of a jury room is pretty much enclosed in a black box. Nobody knows what really went on. And that's what Tanika is alluding to in that article right now, is that juries really can't be trusted. And many countries have abandoned the jury system for that reason. And she also makes a comment that it's not only the jury, it's judges. She said, if you look at the average judge, these are what our society calls elite. These are not, uh, you know, people who are poor for the majority that come. So she said, you're looking at elite population. And in our society, the elite has always thought they were better than everybody else. So she said, if you have this population, they're sitting before you, they have their own prejudice and bias. And her name is Natalie. I hope I don't butcher her last name. I think it's pronounced Rigoli. 
and she says that she uh, has a master's degree in law from the University of Texas and that uh, she's been practicing law for 18 years. And through her experience, there's all these biases. And if you have all these biases from the judge to the jury, then that's why you have the such a large rate, wrongfully convicted population wrongfully in prison. Yeah. People, which the numbers add up to that. Um, it's a tragedy, um, but it gives you a little bit of a backdrop as to why the belief in a system is a complete waste of time. To believe in a system. To be just, given what we just heard. But keep in mind, best system, best justice in the world. What's that based on? Nobody can ever give you what Why? what metrics did they measure? Ju- yes. Do they measure justice systems by? There is just absolutely no. So this is a complete fallacy that we've been told is the best justice system in the world because somebody actually said it. But they have no way to prove to that our justice, no, fa- no, no, nothing to support that claim that we have the best justice system in the world. You know, as you were talking, I was also thinking about the bias that happened. You can imagine behind the scenes of a court in uh, once the jury is together and they're sequestered, there's, in, there's influences and biases that are going on in there. Because someone could actually be trying to influence their opinion or their beliefs on someone else. So if you can imagine you sitting in there, you're in the, with the jury, and they're split. You have people in there that are trying to impose their views and their wills on somebody else. Now they've seen they they basically have seen and formulated their own opinions, but this stuff happens, and you know it can happen. Well, whether they formulated their own opinions remains to be learned right. or seen, because how many people are intimidated by people of the jury to say, "Man, we're not standing here all day. We're not going to do this." We're not going to make you feel we're going to make you feel bad about holding to your position of non guilty, uh, not guilty. And we want you to go with us. So then you have many personalities, strong wills. Uh, There's a a lot that goes on with that. But we we see that. I I was just going to say we see that growing up. You see people that fall victim to peer pressure and stuff like that. You can imagine in that kind of environment. The pressure that people are under, they're going to fall victim to certain biases and, and people are going to try to influence them and impose their will on them and things like that. So, you know, that could, that would be at play as, as well. Well, and on top of that, they say they tell jurors not to discuss the case at home with your family members. Uh, wake up. You think that's happening? But that's what Judge Kaczynski said in his article. Yeah. It's based on assumptions yeah. that they follow the instructions. That they were not biased. Now, who gets up when the judge asks, uh, can you do this case without bias? Yes, I can do this case without bias. You don't know if that's true or not. You have no idea who this person is you're dealing with. Based on a couple of questions, right. they're going uh, to sit on a jury. You don't know what their background is. Uh, maybe they were ripped off in business. You ask all these questions and assume people are telling the truth. And that's where the system goes. It's fully based on assumptions. You assume the judge the judge is going to do right. You assume prosecutors play fair, which uh, Judge Kaczynski knocked down. Prosecutors don't play fair. And he says also that uh, another myth is that the prosecution is a substantial disadvantage because it must prove its case beyond a re- reasonable doubt. He said that's a myth. He's not at a disadvantage. No, I agree with that. And did, Tanik, did, was that everything on the article? Yes. All right. Um, okay. 
Well, uh, we're going to take a quick break, David, come back. Uh, and I presume you guys were all present for jury selection. Is that correct? That's correct. We're going to deal with that, that process, what happened, how many people were let go, because you're supposed to be firsthand up front to see exactly who these jurors are that were, and each side gets a, gets a chance to relieve uh, or to remove people from jury duty. Was there any type of issue there during that process before we go to break, David? It's it's just not a very you're looking at it, it's not a very reliable process. Not reliable. So you got you got prosecutors and you're trying to it's almost like like Kendrick was talking about it's, it's a game. So everybody, yes. everybody game. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to let, let's try to psychoanalyze a juror and see if he's gonna be the type of juror that we want that that'll that'll become innocent. So there's this jockeying back and forth between defense and prosecutors to see who can who can get the advantage of, of the jury. So it's, 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 it's a adversarial competitive type system and the guys are in there competing because they, they want to be top dog uh, when all the smoke clears. And that comes down to what David alluded to. It's a game. And whenever you institute game uh, theory to real life, uh, you're going to have chaos. That's what happened in this case. We'll be right back. Feel free to call in 646-200-0628, the RP5 on the steps of injustice. We'll be right back. This is AJC Radio. I'm a mother. I'm a father. I'm a sister. A registered nurse. I serve my country in the United States military. I'm your neighbor. I sit next to you at church. And my child was arrested, held in custody, questioned without my knowledge, exposed to violence, witnessed to rape, placed in solitary confinement, unable to call or see me, shackled to a wall, beaten, sentenced as an adult at age 17, sentenced as an adult at age 16, sentenced as an adult at age 15. We felt lost, isolated, ostracized. Misjudged. Terrified. And in the absence of all hope, my child took his own life. And then I found the Alliance for Youth Justice. They gave me the support and resources to get through one of the most difficult times in my life. Now I know I'm not alone. And neither are you. Now we have a voice. Now we We have have power. power. In numbers. In numbers. In numbers. We can can make a difference. There are approximately 2 million children in the juvenile and criminal justice system in this country. These are the faces of those families. If you were the family member of a child who has been in the justice system, or if you were someone who supports this movement and is ready to make a difference, visit the Campaign for Youth Justice at www.campaignforyouthjustice.org. Ladies and gentlemen, can I ask you a question? Did you know that there are over 2.4 million people behind bars in the United States? I'll ask you one more question. Were you aware that that is the highest number of people behind bars in the entire world? The United States makes up of only 5% of the world's population, but we have over 25% of the world's prison population. America prides itself on being the most advanced and progressive nation on earth. 
However, sadly, we are also the world's most archaic. I'm going to give you a personal invitation to get involved with the fight against mass incarceration. Take a few moments to call 1-855-529-4252. That is a just cause. And we fight for justice. Again, call a just cause today. Don't delay. Call 1-855-529-4252. It is time, and I say high time, that we take America's incarceration seriously. Won't you join us? Call today. Good morning, students, and welcome to Career Day. I hope you're excited to hear about all the great things you can do when you grow up. Hi, everyone. I'm Emily. I'm super excited to introduce my dad because he's my hero. When I was little, my dad was away a lot. But I was okay with that because he was doing this really important work driving ambulances in Iraq. Now he's at home, which is great for me because I get to see him every day now. And he's still the biggest hero I know because he tells all the ambulances and the fire engines where to go and rescue people when there's an emergency. I'm so proud of him. He's awesome. He's my dad. If your service-connected disability prevents you from continuing in your civilian career, Voc Rehab offers counseling, training with a living allowance, education, and other services to help prepare you for your next mission. We know you care. Now it's time. Time to change the face of justice. Did you know that minority and youth participation in juries is extremely low to non-existent? The incidence of youth and minority offenders facing trials have exploded. Youth and minorities are not being represented as they should be. We must represent for people to get fair trials. If you acquire a state ID or driver's license, it allows you to register to vote. And it allows you to become eligible for jury service. If you're 18, a U.S. citizen with a state ID or driver's license, and registered to vote, you're eligible to be called for jury duty. If called and selected, make it your duty to serve. We can't get justice without you. Change. 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 Change the face of justice. Check your local county or state jury service website for further details. Odds of becoming an astronaut, 1 in 13,200,000. Odds of being struck by lightning, 1 in 576,000. Odds of dating a supermodel, 1 in 88,000. Odds of bowling a perfect game, 1 in 11,500. Odds of being trapped in an elevator, 1 in 24,528. Odds of catching a ball at a major league game, 1 in 563. Odds of an injury from shaving, 1 in 6,585. Odds of tripping while texting, 1 in 10. Odds of getting cancer in your lifetime, 1 in 2 men, 1 in 3 women. It's up to us to change the odds for our generation. For the ones we love. For our future. If you don't like the odds, stand up. Stand up to cancer. Meeting a teen girl online is actually pretty easy. 
you can go into any chat room and just start talking. Most of the girls are usually so insecure and desperate for attention. Attention from older guys is totally flattering. They're so much more mature and understanding than the guys might. Age actually works to my advantage. They like to brag to their friends that they're dating an older guy, so I just play along and pretend I'm really interested. interested in the same things I am. You can talk forever and really get to know someone without worrying about looks or whatever. That's the best thing about chatting. Chatting seems unthreatening to them, so they lower their guard. After a while, I start talking about how we're soulmates and how lucky we are to have found each other. Other people don't understand. I know what I'm doing. If you really care about each other, there's nothing wrong with me. Meeting them is the goal. Once I get them out of their house, well, that's when things get really interesting. Online predators know what they're doing. Do you? They call them the IRP-5. David Banks, Demetrius Harper, Kendrick Barnes, Dave Zappolo, and Clinton Stewart are the recipients of the award of injustice at its highest level. And tonight we've been slowly but surely approaching trial for the IRP-5. And we're going to get into that now as now the defendants are in court and selecting a jury. Uh that will make a decision on the future of these men. And Demetrius, as you sit here tonight, and as you reflect back on that moment, walking into the courtroom, as Dave DiPolo just said moments ago, uh, under this full impression that at some point this case would be dismissed, that this would not proceed to trial, uh, but the actions, the selection of the jury, that process starting, of course, is the beginning, at least to make you know that this thing is not getting ready to end with a dismissal, but a date and a, and a push for trial. Give us your thoughts. Well, Dave alluded earlier, we had three motions to dismiss, and within a matter of a few seconds, she denied all three motions, motion to recuse herself motion for speedy trial and a motion for change of venue. And her she was she was hell bent on we're moving forward with trial. Let's go to Bordier to get a jury selection. We went through that, uh, which I think lasted a few days and then we started started the trial. And a few days to select the jury. Yeah, it was a few days. So again it's this was something uh, to someone mentioned earlier this was a push to, we were representing ourselves pro se, as David mentioned. So a lot of the inner workings on uh, how you do uh, lawyering, we, we, did, we, we were learning on the fly. So we started trial, I believe, the, the 26th of September uh, 2011. And, there, and there, we, we started opening statements. And each one of us had a chance to represent ourselves to say, hi, this is Demetrius Harper. This is who I am. And I got uh, uh, object, Your Honor. Again, I'm going to say, uh, stating my name, who I was, uh, a man of integrity, uh, a, a good father, all these things. 
and we were not allowed, I think after myself and another individual, uh, they said, do not, this is not about uh, your, 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 your integrity is not put on trial, which I beg to differ. We were trying to tell them we we're being uh, accused of something and we weren't able to put on uh, a, a viable defense to say, this is who I am as a man. What was the jury selection like? Did you approve of it? Well, we had – I can't remember the actual – You really don't have a choice. It's basically – it looks fair on the surface because they give you this grid of jurors. Right. And your job is to pick to pick the juror. They, you, you can at, at certain times, you can interview the juror to get their uh, insights on certain matters. But you also understand that while you're in, you're in a juror, the prosecution is always listening. So the way you pick – it's almost a guarantee that your top five to ten jurors that you want are not. I wouldn't have opportunity to get kicked off by the prosecution. You're never going to get them. Yeah, well, the, everybody has a right to strike jurors. And the defense so is on both sides. Is that correct? Right. So many strikes by the prosecution and defense yep. until they drill it down to a certain number that ends up being on a jury. The ones you selected, the other ones got kicked, got, got uh, that kicked is on, by the that prosecutor. That is on both sides. On both sides, yeah. And then the judge allows certain people that may be on the jury to say, I don't want to be on a jury. And they can have a reason to get off that jury for religious reasons, work. Maybe they have a – use these extreme circumstances. Like if you have an elderly parent that you can't be gone for a long time, they'll let you go. But it seemed in this case the judge just took certain discretions to let people off the jury that might be – and all the ones that were this were people that oh. could have been sympathetic to our case. So this is outside the selection? Yeah, this is outside the selection. That the judge allowed people off. Correct. Yeah, the reality is who wants to get paid a few dollars a day when you go to a normal job and, and make a living? Well, no, you're going to have – that's what I'm asking. I'm making sure I'm, I'm clear. They – you're going to have jurors that will ask to be removed, whether it's because they've had issues with law enforcement or, or cases with family members that they just don't want any part of it. Uh, there have been people released as, as far as for that reasoning as well. So, um, And it's really, uh, I believe it's $50 a day uh, someone is making uh, sitting on a jury, but you get a sack lunch. No, you don't. You have to go to the cafeteria and get something. You're not even provided lunch. I don't think. Let me not. Uh, uh, I, I don't know. Go ahead, Samson. Well, just to answer that, um, whenever I was on a jury, actually, they give you a per diem on top for your your lunch. It's basically nothing, you know, to get you. What is lunch. it? Uh, I think here, whenever I was on, I think it was like fifteen dollars for lunch. So I mean, if you want to go back down and get you, you know, a number five at McDonald's, you might be all right. Well, you, know? you can get, you can probably get one more than. Uh, than a value meal that you can eat for 15 bucks. But most places have a cafeteria of some sort uh, in the uh, facilities, I think. Um, okay, uh, so we're at, the, we're at the jury selection. Anything? So we opening statements, I think. We're past jury selection. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So on that, you know, um, Demetrius had said that they basically weren't allowed to talk about their integrity and who they were. Now, Mike, I'm thinking that, you know, when the prosecution got up, they had every opportunity to smear your reputation. They had every opportunity to talk down about you guys and your business in every sense they could bring up. Is that right? Well, I believe uh, they went first. Obviously, they're the prosecuting. They're, they're 
uh, bringing the case. Right. We came on after each one of us had a chance to speak. And our oh, he had uh, a USA Kirsch had his. Now it's our turn. And then if, when I started to speak, I'm going down maybe with minute within my opening statement. I object, Your Honor. Uh, and that's what. And then we, I think we had a sidebar to say, "Well, look, your your integrity is not in question here." And that's 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 a lie. That's well, a whole face lie. Well, to the to the point though is like they basically got to hear every negative thing that exactly. the prosecution wanted right. to say about you, each and every one of y'all, your business, your practices, and whether they, anybody wants to admit it or not. When you start talking about how somebody acts in business, you're talking about their integrity. You're talking about their character because. That is how you do business. People can tell if you're a phony, you're phony. If you've got no integrity, you've got no integrity. So the fact of the matter is, is again, as we've been pointing out the entire time, this thing was slighted against you guys from the beginning. Hey, we're going to let them get out the gate and throw as much mud as they want to. But when you want to jump in front of the water hose or up under the shower to wash some of that stuff up and say, no, this is who I really am. Oh, no, we're going to object to that. Let's just leave that cake on you so – the jury has already have a bias. They didn't have one walking in. Now, because they've had your, you've had your name drugged through the mud, now they have a bias at least. Well, and the, the issue is, is that if the prosecution or the governor of the United States can speak to the character of these defendants, then by all means, the defendant should be allowed to speak to that character as well. Yeah, he's, he is bringing a case where he's saying he's going to prove that this person did this, that there was a scheme, and these guys were scheming to uh, – uh, and obviously they want us to say we're going to prove that we were not scheming, we were men of integrity and all this other type of stuff. That's what we were trying to put through opening statements, but it wasn't allowed. And so the judge agreed with the prosecution. Yeah, and the point is, who objects during the opening statement? Nobody. I mean, that's, that's the part that was crazy, and there was no legal precedent for the objection. Let me explain this to you. There is no legal precedence to object to an opening statement. That is the prosecution and the defense's theory of the case to present to the jury. So just like the prosecution puts it on thick that these guys, they'll come out there and say, this guy walked into a convenience store, shot the clerk, kidnapped a 13-year-old girl, but nobody says nothing. Yeah, I'm going to show you that he went in there, kidnapped the He's girl, a monster. shot a clerk. All this other type of stuff, he's going to try to say this is what he's going to try to prove. But when you try to prove that you're so, I'm trying to prove I'm a man of integrity, objection. That's, that is as backwards as it gets. I've never heard of it. And, Mont, keep one thing in mind. After, I believe I went second, so you had four, my four brothers after me. They weren't allowed to even speak to that because we got called to the, uh, as a sidebar, saying, your, your integrity is not in question here. And did anybody challenge the judge? We challenged her on other issues, not because of that issue. What, what do you do? The judge makes a ruling. We, we, we were, it was a lack of not, we did not. Judge, I'd like to know how right. my integrity is not on display here. All you can do really is object, and then they'll say, well, if you object, it'll be preserved for appeal. Right. That's it. It's not like she was following the law anyway. Right. She so wasn't. It wouldn't help. Not, it wouldn't help. And, okay. and you got to look at the fact that we're pro se. Um, you know, the ones with the legal experience is the prosecution and the judge. So if they object to the opening statement, what experience do we have to say, Your Honor, that's unprecedented? You know, we don't know. I mean, and if you don't have, uh, you know, to talk about your, yourself or, you know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm explaining who I am or whatever, and they say objection, what else do you have to talk about? Well, once the judge, though, makes a ruling, it's irrelevant. It's uh, irrelevant. Uh, if you say, well, I object uh, to not being able to do that, uh, overrule, uh, uh, 
uh, get right. on with it. You're done. Yeah. Right. Yep. So if you get a crooked, corrupt judge, which we had, and then you'll find out they're crooked and corrupt at the appellate court level as well. Right. And people people say, oh, you guys just no, we're not talking about this stuff just to be saying that this stuff actually happened. That's and when, when we when we dig down into the issues at trial, uh, you're not going to believe what uh, what actually occurs here. Who came up next? Um, David, doing your opening statement. What was your the meat of your of your opening statement? Well, you try to again, you try to say what you're going to do. Uh, basically, you try to. Say, I presented that uh, to the best of my recollection, Jack and I presented that. Obviously, we're going to show that we didn't commit a crime, that we were extended credit, uh, and that's what the evidence is going to show, that we were extended credit, and we didn't go about to scheme anybody. Obviously, we are we already nixed from talking about anything else uh, while the prosecutor sits there and uh, makes you look like uh, the devil himself. Um but that's pretty pretty much it. So we're, we're just at the very beginning. You're like, okay, we got to be able to prove the case. Our, our strategy was to obviously show that this was debt and not any sort of criminal scheme that they were talking about and to talk about the business and things of that nature and how we conducted business uh, in each of the transactions to, to defend against each of the prosecutor's uh, uh, charges. That's all you really can do. And it was not a complex case. So when you when you're done with opening statements, uh, the prosecution then puts on its case. The government of the United States begins to put on their case. How does this start? We're going to have to refer back to the record, but he starts calling witnesses. Um, He's going to be calling, and we'll lay the table because I was. So which we, we don't want to open up that. We don't tonight. open that. We'll get into that next week, and we're, we'll come with the case, actual and the transcripts, that case, right? Actual transcripts, and actually show where the prosecutor, and we're going to put this in the backdrop of this was a civil case, and we'll we'll lay down the case that Judge, uh, former federal appeals judge H. Lee Sarakin said it was a civil case. A congressional, a prominent congressional attorney said it was a civil case, and others said it was a civil case. Yet the prosecutor continued to present cherry-picked through evidence to try to make us look like we were engaged in some sort of scheme. We're going to come right back, folks. We're going to play some video, audio rather, uh, to hear as we get ready to build up the next week's case as we hear this case for the government of the United States against the IRP-5, the holes in that case, the lack of a case itself. And that's the next week we're going to take. Let's take a quick break. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. Say goodbye to affordability and say hello to losing control. Discover Price Gougesol, the latest outrageously expensive drug from Big Pharma. It's impossible to afford and reverses the ability to pay other bills. Because drug companies raise prices to pay for commercials like this one, side effects may include overdrawn bank accounts, 
Bad credit scores, higher health care costs, children who don't get Christmas presents, and in some cases, the need to stop taking your medicine. If you experience any of these side effects, contact your financial advisor right away. Out-of-control drug costs are no joke. Yet nine of the ten biggest pharma companies spend more on advertising than research and development. Let's solve the cost crisis now. Visit CSRXP.org. For a kid whose mom or dad is in prison, life is tough. Now add a wrongful conviction to that. Life just got a little bit tougher. Trying to explain to friends why mom or dad is not at the school play or at the ball game is something that no kid should ever be faced with. Especially if mom or dad is innocent. Ladies and gentlemen, get involved today to stop the epidemic of wrongful convictions. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause today. one 855 529 4252. We seek justice for the children. As they go to bed at night and mom's not there, dad's not in the other room to make them feel safe. Not because dad or mom did anything wrong, because justice could not be found. Join us for the children, for they truly are our future. Columbine, Virginia Tech, Tucson, Aurora, Fort Hood, Oak Creek, Newtown, 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 Newtown. How many more? How many more? How many more colleges? How many more classrooms? How many more movie theaters? How many more houses of faith? How many more shopping malls? How many more street corners? How many more? How many more? Enough. 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 Demand a plan. Right now, as a mom, as a dad, as a friend, as a husband, as a wife, as an American, as an American, as an American, as a human being, for the children of Sandy Hook. Demand a plan. No more lists of names. It's not too soon. It's too late. Now is the time. Before we all know someone who loved someone on that list. No more lists. No more who they might have been. No more if we had just done something yesterday. It's time. We can do better than this. We can do better than this. It's time. It's time. It's time for our leaders to act. Demand a plan. Right now. Right now. You! Demand it! Enough. 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 You're on your way to meet up with friends, but you can't seem to get anywhere quickly. You don't want your friends to be annoyed, so you text. You're on your way. Five seconds is the average time your eyes are off the road while texting while driving. Make sure you get where you're going. 
guys, I'm Jordan Sparks. I'm Chase Crawford. And what's up? It's Usher. Hi, I'm Rachel Dosa. I'm Hayden Christensen. I'm Peyton Manning. Hey, we're Fall Out Boy. I'm Dear Archuleta. I'm Corbin Blue. I'm Kristen Bell. And we're the Jonas Brothers. Do something good for your community. Reuse bags and bottles and always recycle. Help us collect a million pounds of food. Help people prepare for natural disasters. Do something about homelessness. Anyone can be a rock star in their community. So then do something. Do something. Do something. Do something. Visit dosomething.org to find out how. The criminal justice system has a set of rights created to protect you. But do you think it's really protecting us? You had a right to remain silent. But that really means you had a right to be silent, doubted, interrogated, suspected. The color of your skin can and will be used against you in the court of law. In their hands, we're incarcerated five times more often than white people convicted for the same crimes. You have a right to attorney during questioning. In some states, 80% of criminal defendants can't even afford an attorney. So an overworked public defender controls your fate. One government employee, countless lives at stake. You had a right to be innocent until proven guilty. But somehow, about 47% of the wrongly convicted are black. And if they do prove you're guilty, they're going to write you a run-on sentence on average 20% longer than white defendants accused of the same crime. Even if you get out, you're still not free. When you're an ex-con, they had a right to deny you a bank account, deny you a mortgage, deny you a job, deny your vote. And if you don't remain perfect with the smallest slip-up, smallest infraction, the most honest mistake, you're going to join us, the 80% who come back to prison within five years, as I did. That's when you realize they didn't bring us here to thrive. They brought us here to build this. The plantation and the prison are actually no different. The past is the present. It ain't no coincidence. This was the plan since abolition, to keep us subjugated by creating this system. But I believe in a different set of rights. The right to stand up and be heard. The right to perform a broken justice system and build a new future. We had the right to be silent. Now it's our right to speak up. Do you understand these rights as I read them to you? You must have thrown a thousand pitches teaching him to hit a home run. Spent countless Saturdays running routes so he could learn to hit an open receiver. Endless afternoons teaching him how to hit the three-pointer. How much time have you spent teaching him what not to hit? Teaching boys that all violence against women is wrong is one of the most important things a man can do. Learn how to start the conversation at teachearly.org. Brought to you by Futures Without Violence and the Ad Council. Did you know that over 1.5 million children in America have parents that are incarcerated? These children cope with the pain through drugs, alcohol, anger, and violence. It is so important. so important. It is so important for communities to provide preventative and intervention services. Don't make them do it alone. Become a part of the community. community. Become a part of the community.
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight. The case of the IRP-5 on full display. Uh, we are against the clock here uh, in regards to going forward from this point uh, into the case of the government of the United States against the IRP-5. Um, we're going to be dealing with that next week as we lay the groundwork uh, for that. Uh, a couple people have some things to say uh, about the IRP-5 uh, case, uh, the injustice, how it started, what happened. People were pretty vocal about it. We're going to hear a couple of clips right now. Uh, let's play the clip. It's about the strangest thing this legal analyst has ever heard. I mean, especially, you know, to me, the whole thing with not allowing experts to be called, I mean, that's just that's just completely, you know, in opposite to, you know, what our, you know, our rights are in, in a courtroom and, and the need to have experts in a courtroom on cases like this. But the fact of losing transcripts, and ironically, as my grandma would say, what a coinky dink, what a coincidence, that the part that's missing deals with a Fifth Amendment violation where they're forced to testify. Isn't that the allegation? But it's not in there. I mean, I never hear transcripts being lost, ever. And if, if there's a lack of a record, you've got some remedies, which is, you know, you should reverse the case. There's not a record to review. I mean, that's part yeah. of it, too. But yet they haven't gotten that. And the fact is, is you don't dismiss an expert witness and tell the jury that they were not timely. I mean, that should have been decided way before the fact. You created the crime. I mean, in a lot of ways. I mean, basically, there's a, the, what preceded the crime, I mean, it's just they weren't able to be debt free because of what you did. And by the way, and, uh, the prosecutor should never leak that there might be an indictment. That's all grand jury proceedings are supposed to be confidential. Um, but then they basically put the accused in harm's way and set them up to be convicted and to not have that income. It's just, you know, one of the things you know is the prosecutor's job is to see that justice is done, you know, not to win any cause, but to do justice. And that wasn't done here, but we know. I mean, we went to law school for years for this. Right. I've never, in, in the cases I've covered as an analyst, as a prosecutor or as a defense lawyer, ever seen a judge hold a pro se litigant to a higher standard, ever. Mm -hmm. I mean, and if they did, they wouldn't say it. Because mm -hmm. that, that's going to be trouble on appeal, too, for the prosecution. And you can't do that. I mean, because they can't, they can't be held to that standard. They're incapable of mm -hmm. attaining that standard. Just by mm -hmm. virtue of a lack of training. No, I was just going to say, just take a look at the Oscar Pistorius trial as an example. They've had delays over there all the time with witnesses that can't get there just because they don't quite judge the day right. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. cases. They have empty afternoons. You see, you know, courts recess. You know, the fact <laughs> is, is that you have to work around people's schedules. I mean, and especially when the prosecutor says, I'm going to take three weeks, not, you know, a week and a half or three and a half weeks. It's ridiculous. No fault of their own. They're penalized again. And that just shows prejudice, too, on the part of the judge. Well, there you have it. That's Ann Brimner, uh, legal counsel for Amanda Knox. You're familiar with the Amanda Knox case. Um, really giving her own indictment against Judge Christine Arguello, uh, honestly, uh, talking about the failure of the court here, that this was a setup uh, in what was done here uh, in this case. David, your thoughts when you hear that? 
Well, those are things we're going to unpack about the trial. Uh, she talked about the transcripts. Not, uh, not only the transcript coming up missing, I'm talking about actual statements made by a judge to compel testimony yes. of a defendant in a trial against their will. Uh, a uh, just horrendous violation of the Fifth Amendment. Uh, she talked about the ability not uh, to put on an expert witness saying they were untimely. They were not untimely. Because that's handled prior to him taking the stand, right? Well, yeah, th there's two options. They were on the witness list. They were just not identified as experts. Um, and if you read, there's a case in the Tenth Circuit uh, dealing, I can't remember the, uh, the individual, the, the Quest executives, I can't remember his name, but Nacho, they address this particular issue that the defense doesn't have to give notice about an expert witness, period. They, and they use a particular term. They're allowed to keep their cards close to the vets. In civil cases, it's a little different, but you, you don't have to qualify expert witnesses in a criminal case. You can call them, put them on the stand, uh, and you don't have to know what they're going to testify about because that's your right to, to put up a defense. And Judge Arguello, this is one of the most horrendous things. This, our expert witness was absolutely critical. Uh, absolutely. That the government was claiming we uh, duped staffing companies into going into business with us or extending us credit. He owned a $300 million staffing company. Right. So how is his testimony is relevant, it's probative. Uh, his, his testimony would have been very beneficial to us. It also would have cleared up a lot of things for the jury which both the judge and the prosecutor didn't want him testifying because it could ruin the prosecution's case. And it would it would it would uh, avoid a conviction, I believe, with the level of expertise that that witness and the staffing company would have given Eberelli. Is that correct? Right. And you're talking black defendants defending themselves with an expert. I'm sorry that it's Caucasian. That makes a difference. On a mostly Caucasian jury, uh, for somebody to come up and be able to defend your position and say these guys did nothing wrong, they actually, he actually wrote letters to the prosecutor about our business practices were customary. The prosecutor didn't want to hear it. Look, I got I have to I have to hang these guys. My job is to hang these guys and and to obtain a wrongful conviction on them. He's not trying to hear from the expert witness. Uh, uh, that can prove our innocence. So he provided a letter to the government of the United States, Matthew Kirsch, John Walsh, uh, stating that the actions of the IRP-5 were normal, right? were and, protocol. And he actually said if, if, there, if we were guilty of a crime, he could point to 12 other or so eight, uh, uh, individuals or, or companies that are doing the exact same thing we were doing. They didn't want to hear it. No, they didn't want to hear it. So you have a case here with the governor of the United States giving information to prove the innocence, at least at a minimum, to cast serious doubt uh, uh, that any such crime that was alleged had no basis to stand on its own merit. Right, and when we when we dig into this case we're going to read his letter on the air and what he sent to the prosecutor we're going to get into some information we provided to the government in the form of a proffer that was completely ignored that showed 
just tons of evidence proving our innocence. They disregarded it all, shoved it to the side, uh, cherry-picked the evidence uh, to support their theory, and went after and, and obtained a wrongful conviction. Is any of that brought up at all in motions prior to trial? Um, well, it couldn't have been because the expert witness was accused during the trial process. Well, but they actually... They discussed, uh, they had to dismiss the case or dismiss the jury and discuss the expert witness. Well, and we, did. Yeah, we had to make arguments that she would not allow him. What was that? Uh, we don't have time. We're yeah, we'll, we'll get into that next week, but I'm we're going to get into that as, issue. I'm curious as to what her explanation was not to allow, to allow him to take the stand. Did he swear in? Yes. Swear in in front of the jury? Yes. And then dismissed? He gave, he gave his name, and then the prosecution objected, and that was the last they saw him. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to leave that as the cliffhanger for next Thursday. Judge Christine Arguello, we're going to pull the cover off of this judge. A judge laced with corruption. This is AJC Radio. The RP5 story continues next week. Good night, America.